Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty, who cover yourself with light as with a garment, who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters, who makes the clouds his chariot, who walks on the wings of the wind, who makes his angels spirits, his ministers a flame of fire. You who laid the foundations of the earth so that it should not be moved forever. You cover it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the voice of your thunder they hastened away. They went up over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place which you founded for them. You have set a boundary that they may not pass over, that they may not return to cover the earth. He sends the springs into the valleys. They flow among the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. By them the birds of the heavens have their home. They sing among the branches. He waters the hills from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your works. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine that makes glad the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread which strengthens men's hearts. The trees of the Lord are full of sap, the cedars of Lebanon which he planted, where the birds make their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high hills are for the wild goats. The cliffs are a refuge for the rock badgers. He appointed the moon for seasons. The sun knows it's going down. You make darkness and it is night, in which all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from God. When the sun rises, they gather together and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O oh Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. This great and wide sea, in which are innumerable teeming things, living things both small and great. There the ships sail about. There is that Leviathan, which you have made the play there. These all wait for you, that you may give them their food in due season. What you give them, they gather in. You open your hand, they are filled with good. You hide your face from them, they are troubled. You take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He looks on the earth and it trembles. He touches the hills and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. May my meditation be sweet to him. I will be glad in the Lord. May sinners be consumed from the earth and the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Praise the Lord. And uh, I uh, was reading this just now and it just dawned on me. It mentioned the, uh, the goats on the hills and the rock badgers up in the cliffs. And when I was in Israel, I remember seeing the goats on the hills down in the uh, Aravah Desert. And then we went up to the north to uh, Caesarea Philippi where the great pronouncement was made about Peter, you are the rock, and then he said, on this rock I will establish my church. I may have misquoted that, but anyway, right up there on the uh, the cliff behind us were these little rock badgers running around. So it was kind of a nice thing, and uh, it's good to see how the Bible just opens right up to our eyes. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read the entire chapter of 1 Chronicles 29, but in particular, David writes a psalm in there. But the, it'll keep it in context if I read you the entire chapter. Take just a couple minutes to get through it. Furthermore, King David said to all the assembly, My son Solomon, who alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. 
and the work is great because the temple is not for man, but for the Lord God. Kind of like our own bodies now, the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. The work is great in our lives and we need to be attentive to it at all times. Now the house of my God I have prepared with all my might, gold for the things to be made of gold, silver for the things of silver, bronze for the things of bronze, iron for the things of iron, wood for the things of wood, onyx stones, set stones set to, to be set, glistening stones of various colors, all kinds of precious stones and marble slabs in abundance. Moreover, because I have set my affection on the house of my God, I have given to the house of my God over and above all that I have prepared for the holy house, my own special treasure of gold and silver, 3,000 talents of gold. One talent is about 75 pounds, so you can imagine how much David uh, donated to the house of the Lord, of the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver to overlay the walls of the houses, the gold for the things of gold and the silver for the things of silver, and for all kinds of work to be done by the hand, hands of craftsmen. Who then is willing to consecrate himself this day to the Lord? Then the leaders of their father's houses, leaders of the tribes of Israel, the captains of thousands and of hundreds, with the officers over the king's work, offered willingly. They gave for the work of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord into the hand of Jehiel the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced, for they had offered willingly, because with a loyal heart they had offered willingly to the Lord, and King David also rejoiced greatly. Therefore David blessed the Lord before all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and is in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Now therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? For all things come from you and of your own we have given you. For we are the aliens and pilgrims before you, as were all our fathers. Our days on earth are as a shadow and without hope. That's the word of the Lord from 1 Chronicles chapter 29, and I stopped at the 15th verse. It does go on after that, just telling about the work of uh, David and Solomon as they prepared for the temple. And I have a feeling this thing may blow over today, so if it does, uh, we'll just have to uh, work through that. I have a feeling that might blow over today, too. I apologize for being so disorganized, but this... These winds went away for, what, almost two full months, and now they're back like last summer, and so everything's blowing around, and it makes things a little difficult to, uh, to uh, handle. All right, today we're going to be speaking on a rainbow, a vineyard, a blessing, and a curse. This is from Genesis 9, verses 8 through 28. Now, although for many people the Bible gets much easier to swallow from today's passage on, we are still going to have many stories that are hard to reconcile in the Bible. In other words, some things that just seem incredible. The first eight chapters of the Bible really confound people, but we are going to come up to other chapters in the Bible where things seem like they don't match with our current thoughts about how the world works. 
and we will get through each one of them as we get to it. But in the end, every single one of these stories is given by God and it bears the reliability of his truthfulness. Some of the toughest concepts are behind us now though. We've worked through God being a creator. A lot of people have trouble with that. We've worked through a literal six day creation. We've worked through the Garden of Eden and the fall of man and people living to be hundreds and hundreds of years old. One guy, Methuselah, lived to be 969 years old, almost a thousand years. And finally, we worked through a worldwide flood, a flood in which only eight people were on an ark. Everybody else on the entire earth was destroyed. And on that ark, along with those eight people, were all of the animals of the entire world, which would be used to, again, repopulate the face of the earth. And as difficult as that was to get through, we know that it's true and it bears the reliability of God's hand. Now I've asked this question before and I'm going to ask it again in the future. What would be the point of God making up these stories? If these stories are not true, then what type of a God are we dealing with? Of course they're true. And God expects us to have faith that they are true despite the difficulties that they present. He even promises through Isaiah the prophet in the first chapter of Isaiah, the 18th verse, he says, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. The Lord doesn't just expect us to think things through without him working with us. We are reasoning together to come to a resolution about his word. I personally believe, this is Charlie Garrett believes this, and I believe the Bible bears it out, that there is a far, far greater reward for a person who believes these stories and lives his life as a plumber or an electrician than there is for a lifetime of being a pastor, a Bible teacher, a seminary professor, a missionary, or any other job that makes someone appear religious while not believing what is actually written in the pages of the Bible. I am never, never more amazed than when I hear a preacher or a seminary professor say they don't believe this part or that part of the Bible. Now imagine an electrician saying, I don't believe that this is going to kill me if I touch it. Of course he does, because that's where he's devoted his life and his energy. If you do that with the Bible, I cannot think of a stupider waste of time or a more pointless existence than spending your entire life not believing the very thing that you spent your life doing. One of the people that is here right now, I won't give out his name, but he was attending a Sunday morning church just a while ago, not church on the beach, he was at another church, and he had some questions about the book of Job. He was reading it at the time, and he wanted to know about the great beast that is mentioned there, known as Leviathan. In the book of Job it says this, his sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning lights, sparks of fire shoot out, smoke goes out of his nostrils as from a boiling pot and bur burning rushes. His breath kindles coals and a flame goes out of his mouth. His question was asking if this was really some kind of fire-breathing dragon uh, animal or creature like a dragon or if it was something else. And I can tell you before I give the response of the pastor that we have right here on planet Earth today a little bug called a bombardier beetle. And it's got two types of gases in its these chambers next to its belly. And if another animal goes to attack it, it will release these simultaneously out of different chambers and those gases meet and they actually cause an explosion which will keep other animals away from it. The bomb bombardier beetle, don't trust me, go check it out for yourself, but it's a real animal and it really exists. Now if God can make a bombardier beetle that does this, of course he can make a large animal that does it as well. 
But the pastor's response to his question was that the Bible will sometimes use myths, local myths, and it will incorporate them into its writings. In essence, what he, he was telling this guy is that the Bible is merely accommodating its audience. It's saying, well, this isn't really true, but you believe it is, and so we're going to accommodate you with that thought. It is a polite way of saying that God is lying in his own word. If God is using a myth about the Leviathan, maybe David is using a myth, or he is a myth. Maybe Jeremiah the prophet never existed, or maybe Jesus Christ was really just a guy that was born to a human mother and born out of wedlock. Of course these things matter. Each and every one of them matters. And if it doesn't, then if you can't trust every single line of the Bible, then you have to ask yourself, what can I trust about the Bible? And that's a question that each one of us needs to deal with in our own lives. You say, I don't like this particular verse. I'm not going to abide by that. Then how does that reflect on all of the rest of the Bible? The Bible is a unified whole. And to take out this particular verse and say, I disagree with it, means that the entire Bible is up to you and your interpretation of it. Noah was a real man. The flood really did happen. And there really were only eight people to repopulate the entire world and to begin again. And today, we are going to venture into the post-flood world, along with Noah, and we are going to see how things started off in this new world. Remember this Bible lesson, though, about interpretation. If something is recorded in the Bible, it's because it is there because God wants us to learn from it. It is about his great unfolding plan for the lost human soul. It is a gift and it is a treasure. So let's handle it carefully, let's search it diligently, and let's tenderly look into it to see what God is trying to tell us in the pages of the Bible. And I have to tell all the people that are watching this right now that it's raining and I've got people all over here putting up umbrellas and it was a little distracting there for a minute. But anyway, I hope that things are going okay as far as the video and if not, then I apologize. But let's do all of this. Let's, let's take and handle the Bible properly and believe it for the glory of God for the ed edification of our souls and for the encouragement of our own minds. Here's our text verse for today. It comes from Isaiah chapter 54, verses 9 and 10. For this is like the waters of Noah to me, for I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth. So I have sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has mercy on you. May God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. And that brings us to our first thought today, which is a rainbow. If you know who Irving Berlin is, he wrote these words, blue skies smiling at me, nothing but blue skies do I see. It took a lot, and I mean this sincerely, it took a lot of very smart people to figure out why the sky is blue. People had to build on the ideas of other people and eventually we figured out why the sky is blue. It goes all the way back to Aristotle more than 2,000 years ago. He started to try to figure out why is the sky blue and since then Isaac Newton worked on the problem and many other people as well and the reason why it took so long to figure out why the sky is blue is because the solution to this problem encompasses so many different disciplines. It encompasses science, it encompasses biology and uh, all types of other disciplines and nobody is a specialist in all of them. 
But that is how we came to this resolution of how the sky is blue. We needed to first understand sunlight, the angle that solar light travels through the atmosphere, even the little particles that float around in the atmosphere down to the smallest atmospheric particles. All of these things we needed to understand as well as how our eyes perceive color. It was Isaac Newton that first demonstrated that by using a prism, the white light of the sun contains all of the colors of the visible spectrum. So all colors are possible in the sky, but this didn't answer why the sky is blue. All we know is that we have blue out there, but all of the colors are possible from the spectrum. But then comes a guy named Lord Raleigh in 1871, and he formulated how the at atmospheric particles interact and scatter light waves into shorter wavelengths, which appear more blue and violet. These shorter wavelengths scatter much more than the longer wavelengths. And because of this, the scattered light disperses equally in all directions. And so the sky appears saturated with color. The only exception is when something brighter than that saturation appears, like when you're looking directly at the sun. Then you see all of the white light coming in. When you do, all of the wavelengths are coming in at one time, and that's why they appear white looking towards the sun. When we look away from the sun at the clear sky, all we're seeing is that refracted light that is out there, the scattered wavelengths like violet and indigo and blue. But we only see the blue. So why is that? Once again, we have another discipline that comes in, which is our own eyes. It's because of the way that they are made. Unlike our sense of hearing, we can hear individual sounds out here like the seagulls and we can hear the rustling of the trees. Or if we're listening to an orchestra, we can hear a violin or a cello or an individual sound. Our eyes don't work that way. When our eyes look out, they interpret certain combinations of wavelengths as a single discrete blue color. Our visual sense interprets the blue-violet light that's coming through the sky as a mixture of blue and white light coming from the, from the sun. And that is why the sky is blue. So the next time that you go out and you enjoy a beautiful blue day, which we don't seem to be having right now, remember that the dust in the air, the cones in your eyes, along with many, many other gifts are what give us the lovely blue days here on planet Earth. Now, I know that doesn't seem important and relevant to what we're talking about, but it is because we're going to see how that prefigures in with the rainbow in just a minute. Here we start with verse 8. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth, Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the entire earth. Now back in Genesis 6, verse 18, we read this concerning the covenant with Noah. He said, but I will, future, establish my covenant with you and with your sons when you go into the ark. You, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Then in Genesis 8, 21, we read this. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. So he promised a covenant, then he smelled the sacrifice and says, I'm going to establish my covenant. And then he said that if Noah would be obedient to the directives, which were to get onto the ark, 
with his family and to leave the world behind. And Noah did exactly that, and he consigned the world to its fate. He destroyed the world by flood. But God carried Noah through that flood and safely to the shores of Ararat, where he made his sacrificial offering, and God accepted it. And now, right here in chapter 9, God confirms the covenant to Noah, and he becomes the heir of the new world. He is just as much a father to each one of us as Adam is, because we all come from Adam and then through Noah. The seed of man continued through and because of the obedience of this one man. And even more, God made the covenant with all animal life as well. So should we ever presume that we need to build an outpost on another planet because the world is going to be flooded because of global warming? we would be as dumb as the ox that eats the grass. God has promised that he always will keep the world from a global flood. The earth will never again be flooded as it was. And so you, if Al Gore tries to scare you into this, you can tell him, Al, take it up with God. He has made his promise and it will stand firm. Now, I have a question for you. Kind of personal, unless you're wearing a bathing suit, but have you ever taken an outdoor shower and seen a little rainbow in the mist around you? Have you ever seen that? It is a treat to the eyes, and it is a personal gift from the Lord. How much more splendid, then, is a giant rainbow, or even a double rainbow on a summer afternoon? We had one right off of our dock Tuesday night. I had a friend visiting from Oklahoma over the past week. I had a couple friends over for dinner that lived down the road. We were having dinner, and as they were getting ready to go back to their house, I looked over and I said, there is a rainbow out there right now. And Hedico went out and got these beautiful pictures of this big double rainbow. So the question is, what is it that makes a rainbow? The answer is that it's these little droplets of water in the air that act like tiny prisms. We talked about that with the blue sky. Well, what's happening is light enters the droplets in the air and it reflects off the backside of them and then it exits. And when this happens, the light is broken into a spectrum just like the triangular glass prism that Isaac Newton spoke about. The angle between the ray of light coming into the ray and coming out of the drops and the different colors reach your eye and they form a circular rim in the sky, a rainbow. In a double rainbow, the second bow is produced when the droplets have two internal reflections at the same time. And these droplets have to be exactly the right size in order to get two reflections to work. But that brings us to verse 12. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For perpetual generations, I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be that when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And Noah, God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The very fact that this statement is given here tells us without any doubt at all that there were never rainbows before the flood. It does not mean that there wasn't rain before the flood, but that the sky, if there was rain, diffused light differently. In other words, and we've talked about this in two separate sermons, 
Back in Genesis chapter 1, we read about the canopy, which was over the earth. In Hebrew, it's known as arechia. And when we were there, we noted that it was probably a solid canopy made of crystallized uh, water that encircled the entire earth. And because it was there, it w the light coming into man's eyes would have been differently reflected and no rainbow would have been produced. After the flood, when the canopy was gone, God knew that the result would be that there would be rainbows in this new blue sky of the post-flood era. Sorry, I'm getting all choked up here. And so he uses this new display of wonder and beauty as the sign of the covenant that was coming. If you think about it, you look at the Bible as it's portrayed in these different things happening, this is why God promised a covenant back in Genesis chapter six. And then he said that he accepted the offering there in chapter eight, but now only is he confirming the covenant. If you can see how everything fits so beautifully and so perfectly, and it's so logically ordered when you read the Bible in its context. And now when we look into the sky and we see these terrifying storms that are out there, we are reminded of God's promise to us. And just like that, just like when these, these storms are coming out in the sky, like they are right now, we know that it is a localized event. It is not something that will ever destroy the world again. And the thicker the cloud, the darker the cloud, the more horrific the storm coming at you, the more brightly that bow is going to shine in the sky. And the great life lesson for us in the rainbow is that just when we have, just like that terrible storm that's coming towards us, we have our own troubles in our life. God's encouragement and his reliability abound in our life so much more. Just as the sun shines through the waters to produce the bow for our eyes, we are told to have the light of Christ shine through our souls to produce encouraged hope in our hearts. And the rumbling of the thunder, which directs our eyes to the rainbow, is like the call of the Holy Spirit to the dead soul who is looking for God and who is struggling to find him. Paul tells us the remedy for our dry condition right here in the New Testament. He says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. The light of the rainbow for the physical man is like the light of Christ for the spiritual man. We can trust him both as gracious gifts from our wonderful and glorious creator. And we should thank him even now for the precious promises which proceed right from his word, which brings us also to our second thought of the day, which is a vineyard. We started out with a rainbow and now we have a vineyard. A few weeks ago, I said that various long verses and long narratives in the Bible. When you're looking at these long narratives, you're gonna see these individual verses which form pivot points within the narrative. Normally, these are ideas which are offset from the rest of what's happening on both sides of them. And we've come across two of these concerning the flood of Noah. The first was in chapter six. It was describing over here the wickedness of man and how God was going to destroy the earth and all of these things. But when everything seemed hopeless, we read these beautiful words that said, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then right in the middle of the flood account, you've got all of this flood stuff going on and all of a sudden you come to this verse and it says, then God remembered Noah. If you look for these types of comments as you're reading, you'll be able to understand how God is turning the story on that pivot point and preparing the reader for it to go off into a new direction. Now there is another type of tool 
that God uses, which is found in his word, and it's found right here in the following verses. And I want to see if anybody can figure out what this tool is. This is verse 18. It says, Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the whole earth was populated. Did anybody see what the tool was here? I'm going to read these verses again. It says, Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these three, the whole earth was populated. For the past 17 verses that we've been reading, God and Noah are interacting through sacrifices, through directives, through a covenant, through promises, and through signs. Noah's sons were mentioned in this account, but when they were, it was only in conjunction with Noah. Now in these verses, something more is added. If you remember back in chapter four, we did a sermon on the line of Cain. I stressed one name again and again and again. As a matter of fact, I said this girl's name nine times in one sermon. And the reason why I did this is because her name is hugely important to what's coming in a later account. And yet she, when she was mentioned, Almost nothing was said about her. Her name is Naama, and I'm going to read you the verse about her. It says, And as for Zillah, she also bore Tubal-Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naama. For what seemed like no reason at all, Naama was mentioned, and she's never referred to again. But if one missed the significance of what her name means, then their interpretation of much of the rest of the Bible would be flawed. Only one name in one verse with seemingly no significance at all, and yet it is so important to what God is telling us. These verses that I just read said this, now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these three the whole earth was populated. The tool that God is giving us here is not just trivial information concerning the names of the sons of Noah. Instead, the tool is the introduction of Canaan. As we're going to see later in the Bible, each of the sons of Noah had other children. We're going to get to chapter 10. It's called the Table of Nations, and we're going to see 16 sons born to these three men. And yet, only Canaan is mentioned in this verse. The tool that is being used is something that you are going to see many, many times as you read the Bible. And when something or someone is added for no apparent reason, it is actually often a key to understanding the overall picture of redemption of mankind or maybe some other major subject area in the Bible. So look for these and think on them when you come to them and I assure you that you will find both deep treasure and you will also have sound doctrine in your understanding of the Bible. Every single person on earth descends from Noah. I mentioned that a moment ago. But after him, the divisions start. We are all sons of either Shem, Ham, or Japheth. If we are a son of Ham, then we might be a son of Canaan. If we are a son of Canaan, then we may be able to discern something about ourselves, just like Jews can discern something about themselves. So pay attention and understand the workings of God. And as I was preparing for this sermon, I knew that this being the first church on the beach in the morning, this would be a small congregation. And yet, I had to laugh because when I was thinking about it, we have all three of the sons of Noah represented right in this little congregation today. We have sons of, or I should say sons and daughters of Ham, 
we have of Shem and we have of Japheth. So look around you and try to figure out who belongs to who. And afterward, I'll tell you which line you belong to of the three sons of Noah. Very interesting that the few people that are here divide up into the three sons of Noah. But it's not that uncommon as you travel around the world. And you can identify who you belong to and how it pertains to you. Verse 20, and Noah began to be a farmer. Then he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away and they did not see their father's nakedness. Almost all commentaries hammer Noah in these particular verses, particularly for getting drunk. The terms sin, shame, weak, imperfect, and many others that I read are used. Or commentaries will say that Noah didn't know that he'd get drunk if he drank wine. And so they show him as naive in an attempt to relieve him of the guilt that they feel that he bore in what he did. But I got to tell you, none of the commentaries get to the heart of the matter, nor do they align with the account of what Paul says in the New Testament about drinking. In the 1 Corinthians chapter 11, speaking of the Lord's Supper, Paul says these words, For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. And that means literally they were drunk at the Lord's Supper. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? And when he says to eat and drink, and he was talking about alcohol. Although it may show poor decision-making, the problem here is not that Noah was drunk. Paul notes that the people at the Lord's Supper were drunk, but he never rebukes them for it. And Noah was in his own house, which is exactly what Paul says for the believers in Corinth to do. So we can't fault Noah for what he was doing. It is, in my opinion, and actually biblically sound, it is unacceptable to pick and choose verses for cross-referencing in order to suit one's own personal convictions about a matter, like being drunk or even drinking alcohol, and then to disregard the verses that you disagree with. The Bible, I said this earlier, is a unified whole, and what it proclaims as acceptable is to be treated in that manner, whether we personally like it or not. Having said that, and before I go on, I am not trying to promote drunkenness. That's not what I'm doing here. What I'm doing is going where the Bible leads us and not taking the Bible where I want it to go. The issue in these verses has absolutely nothing to do with Noah's state of drunkenness or his nakedness. He was in his own home exactly like Paul said he should be. The issue has to do with the actions of Ham and they are the entire purpose of why Canaan was introduced into this odd in this pivotal verse which we looked at just a couple minutes ago. Uh, back a few sermons, I said that one of the most important of all Bible rules is to not let our attention get sidetracked or our analysis swayed by our own personal biases or what we already believe. Noah was out there, he was minding his own business, and his son Ham did what was disgraceful. But again, like the earlier verse, it brings Canaan into the picture. And Ham, the father of Canaan. Once again, despite what Ham did, the relevance is on Canaan. It's not on Ham, even though Canaan is not included in this account at all. He didn't do anything to his father, to his grandfather, and yet he is included in here. Ham saw the nakedness of his father, and he told his two brothers. 
and we can infer that his words were more than just dad is lying naked inside of his tent. Instead, it seems that Ham made light of the matter and may have treated Noah with either contempt or with levity. In other words, at a minimum, Ham was making jokes about his own father to his brothers. But his brothers treated their father with a decent and reverent and obedient respect. Instead of joining Ham in his immoral conduct, they took a garment, they laid it on both of their shoulders, and they went backward and they covered their father's nakedness. And while they did, they had their faces turned away. In the book of Habakkuk, we read a very, very similar verse to what occurred there. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk, that you may look on his nakedness. We can act actively or we can act passively in a perverted manner. But either way, the Bible condemns these type of actions. God calls us to holy living and to act in a manner which maintains both our dignity and the dignity of other people. And this is the failure of Ham. And it led to the consequences of our next major thought, which is our third and final thought of the day, a blessing and a curse. So Noah awoke from his wine and he knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. It may be, it may be that the words, what his younger son had done to him, speaking of Ham, is saying that Ham did more than just speak in an irreverent way about his father. Ham may very well have committed an actual physical perversion against his father as well. And this is not unlikely, and it would explain quite a bit, as we'll see later as we progress through the book of Genesis. We get to the account of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all the way to the book of Revelation. This type of act may be what's being spoken of that Ham may have done to his father Noah. But the question is, why did Noah curse Ham's son, Canaan, instead of him? Again, commentators of past history have inserted Canaan into the account and said that Canaan must have participated with his father in what Ham did. But there are two reasons why that is not correct. The first is that it doesn't explain why Ham wasn't cursed along with Canaan. And more importantly, Canaan isn't even mentioned in the account. So people have to insert that into there. Let's review the answer as to why this is the case, why he cursed Canaan and not Ham. The reason that Canaan is cursed and that Ham is not goes back to verse one of chapter nine. It says there, so God blessed Noah and his sons. At that time, I said that God had blessed Noah and his three sons, and it was certainly a blessing in their physical person and possibly in their spiritual person too. But that blessing does not necessarily transfer beyond them. I know this is a little confusing, but in other words, God had already blessed Ham, and therefore Noah could not curse Ham. The Bible clearly says elsewhere, how shall I curse whom God has not cursed? And how shall I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? Because Ham had received God's blessing, it would be an act of defiance against God for Noah to turn around and curse him. Instead, he cursed Canaan. Ham was the youngest son of Noah, and Canaan was the youngest son of Ham. 
And so in order to demonstrate justice in this matter and to ensure that he did not curse somebody that God had already blessed, he turned his curse towards Canaan. The curse upon Noah, or I'm sorry, the curse of Noah upon Canaan and the blessing of Shem and Japheth by Noah is the very first prophecy given by a man in the Bible. But what is left unstated in that prophecy is any word about Ham at all. And since that time, the descendants of Ham have remained generally outside of the, the, the world stage. They are the great ignored figure of prophecy in the Bible. Now that's not to say that they're not important people, but if you look at the center of the world stage, it centers mostly on the Middle East, on Europe, or on America. And the descendants of Ham, which encompass that, are pretty much outside of the main focus of the world. In the next chapter, we're going to see the divisions of these three sons. The curse on the Canaanites is going to become more and more evident, leading right up until the time of Israel entering the Promised Land and the interaction of Israel with the Canaanites. And it will be exactly as Noah has prophesied right here. After cursing Canaan, Noah directs his first blessing to his second son, Shem. And this is known, I've said this in a couple other sermons, but it's important enough to repeat right here. This is known as the doctrine of divine election. Abel, if you remember, was put ahead of his brother Cain. Abel was killed, and so Seth replaced him as the chosen and adopted son. Now for the second time in the Bible, we see a second son replacing the first son. And this pattern is going to continue and it's gonna grow richly, and I mean this sincerely, in Genesis in particular, but throughout the entire Bible, and it points directly to the work of Jesus Christ and what he has done on our behalf. God created Adam, Adam fell, and Jesus Christ is going to replace him. In the book of 1 Corinthians, he is called the second man, the second replacing the first. We have, after these three sons, Shem, we come eventually down to Abraham. Abraham is not the firstborn, and yet he is the chosen son. He is the secondborn son, and yet the line continues through him. And then we have, after Abraham, two notable sons. We've got Isaac and Ishmael. Once again, Isaac is the chosen son. The line continues through him. After Isaac, we have two notable sons. We've got Esau and we've got Jacob. Again, Jacob is the selected son, and Esau is outside of the line. And then from Jacob, we come to the 12 sons of Israel. All of them receive a blessing, but only one of the sons continues the line down to Jesus Christ. That is Judah. And he has two notable sons, Perez and Zerah. The second son, again, is selected over the first. And this continues on and on and on throughout the Bible. There's about 25 instances where this occurs. And so the Bible, as it continues in this way, helps us to think about our own selves. God has chosen each and every one of us and he has placed us in the exact place where he wants us to be to display his wisdom and his knowledge in our lives. And yet he does this in a way that does not violate our own free will. Thus he is both just and he is the justifier of all who will put their faith in him. In his blessing here, Noah mentions his second son now, or his first son with the second blessing, Japheth. He says, may God enlarge Japheth. In saying this, he makes a pun on the name of his son because Japheth means to enlarge. 
So Noah blesses Japheth with the exact same name that he was given when he was born. In all, the prophecy that Noah utters mentions the servanthood of Canaan three times. And Canaan is put directly as a servant of both his brothers Shem and Japheth. And that brings us to verse 28. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Here we are. This is the last verse of this chapter, and also I know thankfully with all the wind out here, it's the last verse that we're going to look at today. Noah was 600 years old at the time of the flood. He lived 300 years after the flood, and this means that he died in the year 2006 after the creation, or Anno Mundi. And before I close up today, I want to give each one of you a note of hope about your standing with God. In the Bible, as I said, there are blessings and there are curses, and these fall on various people at various times throughout the years. But some of them will transfer beyond the particular person that was blessed or cursed, and we know this, just like the curse on Canaan. The problem that many people have then is if they are outside of the favored line that God has chosen, they may feel like they are still living under a curse. However, the Bible makes it absolutely clear that through Jesus Christ, every single person on earth is granted the same privileges and the same salvation. The account of Noah's sons is listed, and you see it in Genesis, you'll see it in Chronicles and elsewhere in the Bible, it says Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And when you go to the book of Acts, it is the same order in which salvation is brought to the people of the world through Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 2, the Jewish people, the sons of Shem, are standing there at Pentecost and they believe on Jesus Christ and they receive the Holy Spirit. And then the sons of Ham came next when an Ethiopian eunuch received Jesus Christ and was baptized and received the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 8. And then finally we have Cornelius of the Italian regiment. He was a son of Japheth. He received Jesus Christ along with his whole family. They received the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 10. So the same order in which they are given their blessing is the same order in which they were reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. In Christ, every curse is lifted and every heart is made new. All who call on Jesus Christ are elevated to the exact same position and nobody rises above anybody else. Paul explains this very detailingly throughout the book of Galatians, but this particular set of verses gives a very good indication of this. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now remember, Abraham is of the chosen line of Shem. and he is the one that carries on this blessing but paul is saying that in jesus christ it doesn't matter where you descend from if you have put your faith in him then you are abraham's seed according to the promise in christ there is this great and there's this glorious future for every single one of us and we are all blessed as god's precious children god spoke to noah and to his sons too as for me behold i establish my covenant with you and this covenant will continue on forever it is true, I am also making it with your descendants after you. And even more, it is with every living creature that you see, with the birds, the cattle, and every beast with you. Of all the life that leaves the ark, the promise is from me. This is my covenant, and my words to you are true. 
Never again shall all flesh be cut off by such an inundation, nor again shall there be a flood to destroy every living man. I make this covenant with you, and I make this proclamation. This promise to you is a part of my great unfolding plan. And this is the sign of the covenant between me and you and every living creature with you for all generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud to remember that it's true, that your flood was the last of such watery devastations. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the land that the rainbow will be seen brightly in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant and my word, it shall stand. Never again will a destroying global flood be allowed. The rainbow shall be in the cloud to remind me of this day. I will look on it to remember my everlasting promise. Between God and every living creature I do convey. My word is true, so I ask you not to be a doubting Thomas. Now the sons of Noah that were on the ark were three. Shem and Ham and Japheth, each had his given name. And Ham was the father of Canaan. Cursed he would be when Ham did something wrong. On Canaan fell the blame. Noah began to be a farmer and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and lay drunk and uncovered in his tent. And Ham, for his father's state, modesty, he did not regard. And he talked to his brother saying things with bad intent. But Shem and Japheth treated their father with respect. They covered Noah's nakedness in a caring way. They had their faces turned and his dignity they did protect. And their deeds are hailed as noble even to this day. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what Ham had done. And so in repayment, Noah cursed Ham's youngest son. Cursed be Cain, and a servant of servants he shall be. He shall serve his brethren, and they shall rule over him. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Yes, blessed is he. And may Canaan be his servant. May his days be ever grim. And may God enlarge Japheth. And in Shem's tents may he dwell. And may Canaan be his servant to serve Japheth as well. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years, so all the days of Noah were 950 and he died. He lived through great trials and certainly many tears. It can be said of Noah, his faith was perfectly applied. And we, like Noah, can also be called sons of God when we call out to Jesus as our saving Lord. When we do, heavenly streets we will trod, yes, simply by believing and taking God at his word. Hallelujah and amen. Let me take just a moment. I see some people sitting here that I don't know, and I want to make sure that if they have never called on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that they know how to do it and why he came. The reason that Jesus Christ came is because the Bible tells us that we are all sinners, that we have all sinned against an infinitely holy God. We've lied. We've done things we shouldn't have done. We've violated God's commandments and we've transgressed his laws and because we have done that we are separated from God and the Bible says that the wages of sin is death the wages are the things that you earn throughout life you go to a job you get a pay and you get your paycheck for having worked well our pay for sin is death but the Bible goes on to say the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord he grants us grace and mercy by sending his own son to die on a cross to take the penalty that you and I deserve. And that's what Jesus Christ did. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the Bible goes on to say that all who call on the name of Jesus Christ will be saved. In other words, we have to acknowledge to God that yes, we have sinned. No, we cannot save ourselves. And that we want Jesus Christ to take our place 
in the punishment that he bore. And God makes that transfer, and we can never, never, never lose that. It is an eternal gift of God. The moment that you call on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the Bible says that he seals you with his Holy Spirit, and that is called a deposit or a guarantee. It is something that God has granted to us, not because we deserve it, but because of his great love for the people of the world. So if anybody here has never called on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I can't imagine why you wouldn't do it today. He loves you enough to send his own son to take the penalty that you deserve. And then he offers you the right to be called a child of God and to have eternal peace with him and live in his presence forever. So let's take a moment, let's say a prayer about that. And then next week we're going to have, it's, uh, does anybody know what next Sunday is? Palm Sunday. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday. We'll do something special for Palm Sunday. And the week after that uh, is Easter, the Resurrection Day. And we'll do something about that. And then we'll get into Genesis chapter 10. And I got to tell you, I know today was a little bit tongue twisting. It's a very hard sermon to preach for me. I don't know why. I've really struggled with this week. But Genesis chapter 10, I'm going to tell you this now. And I'm going to repeat it probably during the sermon. I got into that and I thought I will never get a sermon out of this. It's 20 some verses long. I got to verse 5 and I was completely done with my first sermon. I had to do three sermons out of Genesis chapter 10, and yet it's all just names. And when you see how unbelievably rich is Genesis chapter 10, you are not going to believe what God has put in there and how it's woven into the rest of the Bible and how it's woven into the people of the world. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for bringing us here today. Thank you for the hope of Palm Sunday next week, which... Jesus Christ was hailed as the Messiah by Israel and then the sorrow that came just five days later when he was nailed to a tree on that that Friday which we call Good Friday because it was good for us that it happened even though it was tragic and it was terrible that it needed to happen but praise be to God one weekend later three days on the third day later on Sunday morning Jesus Christ came out of the grave he prevailed over death and over hell and he has promised that each one of us can follow him in that victory if we simply call on him by faith and this is my prayer for the people of the world lord that they will call on jesus christ and that they will know the great and glorious goodness of what he did for the people that you love so much so much that you created and who have turned our backs on you lord turn our hearts to you turn our souls to you and may you ever be praised for what you've done in our lives and we love you in Jesus' name we say this, amen.